I think we have an exciting webinar this week. Mike is going to take us through how to use cross-references. And if you're new to the Bible, I feel like last week we might have intimidated you a little bit by flipping to so many sections of the Bible. But how does one find those connections from one part of Scripture to another? And, and Mike is going to show you a tool that you probably already have that's going to help you make those connections. But in our prophecy section of the seminar tonight, we're going to look at one of the most comprehensive prophecies in the Bible a prophecy that predicted four of the greatest world empires that ever had control at various times over the uh, land of Israel. And it's really a prophecy that in many ways unlocks all other Bible prophecies because it introduces the language of prophecy. And what's really fascinating about Daniel chapter 2 is that most of the interpretation of the prophecy is provided to us right in the chapter or within the book of Daniel. And it opens the door of our understanding to other prophecies in the book of Daniel and in Revelation and in other parts of the scripture. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of a context, uh, time and place. We're going to talk about King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, who was king in about 604 BC when he started. And our chapter tonight is going to take place in Babylon where Daniel and other Jews had been taken captive. So the map there represents just the, the travel path that the Jews might have been taken when they were led out of Israel into captivity into Babylon. And uh, one of the key characters in tonight's story or prophecy is King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I thought it was just really interesting to show you a couple of things from archaeology to show that King Nebuchadnezzar was a, a real person and they've discovered many things about him. And there's just three things here that I found uh, from archaeology. The first one is a brick. And apparently they estimate that, that King Nebuchadnezzar used over 15 million bricks to build official buildings in the city of Babylon. And uh, not surprising that they found quite a few of these with his name on them. He was quite a proud man, and he stamped his name on a lot of those 15 million bricks and uh, those of the name of his god. The second one in the middle there is called a stele, and uh, it's got an image of Nebuchadnezzar. Apparently there's about four likely images of Nebuchadnezzar that have been discovered, but the other three are, are on rocks that are outdoors and uh, worn by the elements, and, and this one was more well-preserved, and there's details of a great temple that was built in Babylon. And finally, this last one, is quite a common tablet of the history of Babylon. And what's fascinating about this one is that it actually refers to the siege of Jerusalem in 597 BC. So just a few years after uh, the story tonight, well, Daniel was in Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar is a real historical figure, and we've got a lot of proof in archaeology to back that up. And that's a, a real great support for the scriptures. Now, what happened in the second year of his reign and we know exactly what year that was because we know uh, the details of his reign. About 2,600 years ago, King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it wasn't your typical dream. It caught his attention. And why did it catch his attention? Because it was a revelation from God. So you can see he was troubled, and he woke up. And he had a lot of wise men, which were basically the scientists, the, the leaders of the day. And he decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to test them. Rather than just tell them my dream, I'm going to make them tell me what the dream is. And then if they can tell the, uh, the dream, then I know that their interpretation will be real, that they're not just making it up. And so he, he threatens them all with death if they can't do it. 
And that threat was to Daniel and his three friends, which were taken captive from Israel because they were being trained in the universities of Babylon. And uh, the wise men, apart from Daniel and his friends, said to the king in verse, verse 10 of chapter 2, there's no king that's ever asked a wise man to do this. This is completely impossible. And that's a key point. If, if you like Bible marking and making a few notes in your Bible, you know, you can underline that, that no man could do this because this was a vision that had come from God. And so Daniel and his friends um, do what, what righteous men do. They turn to God in prayer and they say to God, can you give us the answer to this, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar's had? And you can see there the names of Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You may know them better by the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're the ones of the fiery furnace fame uh, later in, in the book of Daniel. The other thing that's interesting here, I think, is how God is working through his angels. He could have just given Nebuchadnezzar the dream and the interpretation, but uh, he wanted the interpretation to be revealed through his servants, the prophets, through Daniel and his friends. And this is exactly what Daniel 2 teaches us, that there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. And uh, this reminds me of a verse that we looked at earlier in the, in the webinars from Amos chapter 3. And this is the kind of verse you might want to mark in your margin. Or it might even be a verse, I, I didn't look it up, that's in your center margin, which Mike's going to take us through tonight. Because do you notice there that in Amos 3, God says, I won't do anything but I'll reveal the secret to my servants, the prophets. And, and that's what Daniel and his friends are saying, is that God reveals the secrets. And the secrets are the, the vision of, of these world empires. Now, if you were to divide Daniel chapter 2 into sections, I've basically summarized the first 30 verses for you, the introduction. The next five verses are the actual dream. And then what's really neat about Daniel 2's prophecy is that the next 10 verses give us the interpretation. And I think this is very much like the parable of the sower in the New Testament. If you've heard of that, the parable of the sower is a parable that Christ gave to the disciples. And then when they asked, he gave them the answer key. He said, well, this is what every part of the parable represents. And using that, we can actually then read other parables and figure out what they mean. So it's the same thing with Daniel chapter two. God provides for us the answer key which is the key to understanding other Bible prophecies. So Nebuchadnezzar, basically, in this dream that troubled him, he saw this great image that was standing on its feet. It was terrible, it says in Daniel. That means formidable, something that made him fear. And the image was made of different metals. It had a head of gold, and then there was silver and brass and iron. And finally, the feet had uh, some clay in them along with the, the iron. And then on the uh, other side of the picture here, on the right side, you can see what happened. There was a, a stone that came out of a mountain. It says specifically it was cut out without hands. It smites the image on the feet. It breaks the image to pieces, becomes dust. It's blown away by the wind. And then the stone grows and becomes a great mountain that fills the earth. And you can understand why Nebuchadnezzar woke up from his dream at this point and, and was astonished and needed to know what it meant. It was so real and so vivid and such an interesting dream. So like I say, what's fascinating about this is that God provides the interpretation. So Daniel comes to the king after that prayer with his three friends. And he says to the king, you are a king of kings. And God has given you a kingdom 
and you're actually the head of gold. And so we have the first uh, point is that the head of gold is the kingdom of Babylon. That's the starting point of the dream. And, and built into this image are all sorts of little clues about what each nation would be like. The head was the symbol of, of pride. And, and we talked about Nebuchadnezzar writing his name on all those bricks. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a man of pride. So actually in Daniel chapter three, I find this fascinating. Nebuchadnezzar, as soon as he's told the, the meaning of the dream, he actually goes and builds his own image that's um, three score cubits high, that's 60 cubits, uh, 90 feet high. And he says, I'm gonna make this image all of gold. If I'm the head of gold, this image is gonna be entirely gold. There's gonna be no kingdom that comes after me. That's his, his pride. The other thing the head represents is absolute power because Nebuchadnezzar was like a dictator. A little bit later in Daniel chapter five, there's this verse um, where I believe it's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson who's on the throne. And uh, the queen says to him, you know, your grandfather, as opposed to father, had um, authority over the kingdom that God had given him. Whom he slew, he would, and whom he kept alive, he would. Whom he set up, um, whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. He had complete, absolute control like a dictator. And that's representative then in the head of gold. Well, as you read into the next verse, Daniel's given the next part of the interpretation that after Babylon, there's going to be a second world empire. And uh, in fact, it happened in Daniel's lifetime. And again, what's fascinating is that the, the answer to who is the second kingdom is in Daniel chapter five. Uh, Daniel is then um, called in to answer the writing on the wall. You may remember the chapter where the writing on the wall says, many, many tekel uh, perez. And the interpretation for the word Perez is that the kingdom would be given to the Medes and the Persians. And so the second empire is the Medo-Persian empire. And that very night, uh, Babylon fell. The Persians diverted the river Euphrates. They took the city while the king was drunken. But what about it being inferior? Because actually, when we look at a map in a minute, we're going to see that the territory was actually larger. Well, this other verse that I've put up on the screen shows you that the, the power was inferior to that of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't a central authority anymore. They were governed by their laws. And again, you'll probably be familiar with this because of Daniel and the lion's den. The other rulers tricked the king into making a rule that if anyone prayed to a god, they'd be cast into a lion's den. And, and when it turned out to be Daniel, the king wanted to change that. But the, the rulers come to him and say, well, you know, there's no decree or statute which the king establishes that, that can be changed. And so every nation in this, in this image, every kingdom has less power, less centralized power than the one before, just like the values of the metals are, are coming down. Well, the third kingdom, as we try to move along here, was a kingdom of brass. And uh, you may have heard of the brazen-coated Greeks. And that was the third world empire that came after the time of Daniel. And again, what's great is that the, the prophecy is there in Daniel. We looked at this verse from Daniel chapter 10 in week one. Do you remember when Daniel prayed and fasted for three weeks so that God would help him understand prophecy? Well, an angel came to him. And these are the words of the angel that says, well, I've come to talk to you, Daniel, and to help you but I've got to go back and fight with the king of Persia because I'm making way for the Greeks to take over the world. The prince of Grisha shall come. 
And that's the third world empire. Fascinating, isn't it, how the angels are actually the ones that are directing world events so that it, it takes place according to God's, God's purpose. Well, the fourth kingdom of the, the legs of iron was the nation of Rome. And that's a good representation for Rome. And their empire would last over 600 years. I've put a little timeline and a map up here uh, just for you to see. At the top, there's sort of the order of the kingdoms with their approximate times that they were the world empires. But what's interesting here is the map. Because you might wonder, well, why, why those empires? Why not other world empires? But if you look at the top map, which has Babylon and Medo-Persia, and the bottom map that has Greece and Rome, notice that they're all centered in Israel and in Jerusalem. God's talking about the, the empires that would have control over the territory of Israel in the Middle East. And Rome would be that last truly world empire that would control this territory. And what would follow as we go through history is that that territory would be controlled by various nations, all different nations at different times, some of them very powerful and some of them not so powerful. So how did God represent that time period back in the image of Daniel chapter 2? Well, it was this bottom part of the image, which was the feet and toes. They were partly clay and partly iron. Part of them had the strength of the clay and part of the influence of Rome, and others were made of clay. They were very weak and brittle. They didn't stick together very well. In verse 43, not on the screen, it says they wouldn't cleave together. So God says after Rome, the territory of Israel and all the area around it was going to be controlled by an alliance of nations that were diverse and weren't totally joined together, but had some aspects of the Roman power in it. And that's been the state of the region ever since the fall of the Roman Empire. It's amazing how accurately this prophecy has been fulfilled. But I didn't come to Daniel 2 because of those parts of the vision. It's, it's the next part that, to me, is totally exciting. And this is the one that connects with the theme of our webinars. You may have heard me talk about God filling the earth with his glory. That's the theme of our Bible webinars. Well, the next verse talks about the kingdom of God. In the days of these kings, when that territory is, is ruled by many different nations, some strong and some weak, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And that kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it will break in pieces and consume these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The image, the, the kingdoms of men are going to be knocked down by a stone and if you were to go back to Daniel 2, verse 34, in the, in the dream part of the, the chapter, we're told that that stone is cut out without hands. In other words, it's not a human power. It's going to be God that's going to break in pieces the nations of the world. And that stone is going to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. And that, my friends, is the kingdom of God. And you can, you can think of, of many verses in the New Testament that talk about Christ as being the rock. This one's great in Ephesians chapter 2. You can think of Peter who was talking about a rock. And uh, that rock is Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. Christ is the foundation. And he was cut out without hands because the destruction of this empires that exist at the time of Christ's return is going to be different than, than the other empires when they, when they got taken over. In fact, I don't know if you think about it, but that image of Nebuchadnezzar was all one image 
when Persia took over from Babylon, they didn't chop the head off. The image was still standing. In fact, the image represents the kingdoms of men with different names as we go down through history. But it's all the same kingdom until Christ comes and knocks it down. And then Psalm 72 is great. If you, if you want, after the seminar, go read Psalm 72. It's a, a lovely picture of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And it says that Christ will have dominion from sea to sea, from the rivers to the end of the earth. It's going to be centered in Jerusalem, but it's going to fill the whole earth. And the kingdoms of men? I've uh, represented them here as a pile of dust, and uh, I probably should have represented them as nothing because the wind actually takes that and blows it away like the chaff of the threshing floor. And the kingdom of God fills the earth. And, and that's the key thing. Because if you think about the map that we looked at, where was, where was the kingdom of Babylon? Where was the empire of Greece and of Rome? It was centered upon the holy land in the earth. So you see, the kingdom of God that God's going to set up isn't going to be in your heart. It's not a kingdom in heaven, even though it's sometimes called the kingdom of heaven because it has godly characteristics. But it's going to take the place of that territory that these other kingdoms had. It's a literal kingdom that will then spread and fill the entire earth. And I, I think that's amazing, isn't it? The consistency of scripture. I'm going to go back to a slide from last week, from Luke chapter 1. This is when Gabriel came and announced the birth of Christ. And look at all the things we saw last week about this kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom, it's political, it's on the earth, it's going to be a future kingdom, and it's going to last forever. Well, look at Daniel chapter 2, that verse, verse 39. And don't you see how this prophecy checks all the same boxes that we looked at before. In the days of these kings, which is talking about a future fulfillment, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's going to be everlasting. It says at the end, it's going to stand forever. And it's a political kingdom. Why do I say it's a political kingdom? Because it takes the place of Babylon. It takes the place of Rome. It takes the place of that divided kingdom, those nations that are in that part of the world today. And it's going to be on the earth. The only thing we haven't checked off in the box here is the fact that it's the, the kingdom restored to Israel. But we even have that in a sense because it's centered upon the territory of Israel. And it's my prayer that that is going to be fulfilled very soon. Remember last week we looked at the Lord's Prayer and we said, well, why did Jesus ask his disciples to pray that the kingdom would come and that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? because that's what God plans to do. And it's my prayer, friends, that, that this last part of the prayer will be also fulfilled, where God's is the kingdom, for thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. And uh, if we can trust the beginning part of Daniel's prophecy, then we can certainly trust this last part. Okay, I went fast. It's your turn, Mike. Hey. Thanks very much, Dan, and uh, good evening to, to you all. Certainly, Dan's taken us through an exciting portion of prophecy, and what will be equally interesting will be to see the way in which our two presentations really complement each other, to some degree, not altogether deliberate, uh, but you'll see that the, the themes that we're looking at in Scripture 
are certainly those that uh, we can observe or uh, see whenever we go to different parts of our Bible. So when you think about reading, uh, we need to perhaps bear in mind that uh, we've been able to put together a bit of a reading toolkit if we look at our next slide. What I tried to do here was to sort of graphically show some of the tools that we've been looking at. We talked about a plan. We talked about having a purpose that, as we look at reading our Bibles, uh, starting off with a prayer like we've done this evening, having patience because it takes time to read through the Bible and start to put together information. But really the, the, the tools that we've been looking at since then have been very practical to help us uh, fulfill those aspirations. We looked at the idea of uh, the value of Bible marking and looking at the context. We've seen that if we've got maps in our Bible, they can help us to, to give a visual as to where events were taking place. And we need to develop a, a good behavior, a healthy attitude of asking questions. And part of that to, is, is going to then feed into our subject for this evening, which will be looking at cross-references. So your reading toolkit really gives you now the tools you need to read your Bible on your own as God intended. And that's something for us to, to really take on as sort of a, a personal desire. We want to do it on our own so that we become familiar with our Bible. We can engage in conversations with others who are Bible students as well, but it's really a personal exercise. And what we've tried to demonstrate is that it doesn't really require anything but a suitable Bible translation, which we talked about last week, and some Bible marking supplies. So the majority of our tools that we're focusing on don't require a power cord, don't require any other uh, companion books to be, to, to be acquired. We can try to maximize uh, what we can achieve by way of uh, output from our Bible when we make use of it uh, extensively. And our new tool for this evening is to look at cross-references. And that is something that may, you may not be altogether familiar with. And we'll talk about how we can try to use those to enrich our Bible reading experience. So we we'll move on to our next slide. What I thought I'd do is to give you a view of uh, a chapter as it appears in my Bible. Um, this one, actually, I, I took a, an image from, from another Bible that we have in our home because mine has quite a bit of Bible marking on it, and I wanted you to get a, a clean view of what your Bible could look like. Now, you notice that in this particular Bible, there, there is a, a center reference section uh, that is, is, uh, has the Bible text uh, either to the, both to the right and to the left of that center margin. Well, you might have a margin that appears below the, the, the text, or there may be some notes that are, in fact, in, embedded uh, alongside each of the paragraphs, uh, which would be more in, in the margin areas, the, the blank margin areas that it would appear on my Bible. Now, it's helpful for us to understand what we can uh, achieve from using cross-references. Um, now, we need to also bear in mind that unlike the biblical text, which we looked at, which was taken from those ancient languages of, of Hebrew and, and Greek, these references were added later. So they're not inspired. So we need to, to, to give recognition to that. But that being said, they are references that were put together by those who were lovers of the word. Those who were working at institutions like Oxford and Cambridge universities in the, in the UK. Those who were the, 
philologists who were studying the word and were doing that, that translation work. And by having their noses in their Bibles, they started to see naturally connections that God had left there for their uh, development. And these references are intended to aid and enrich your personal Bible reading. And it really becomes an, an invaluable resource. And it, once again, it's right in the midst of the biblical text, either in the center or below it, which means that it's easy to find. And it's something that we can, with a, a little bit of, of training, become very familiar with. So what do the center marginal references help us with? Well, they give us links to people and places and similar events. So where those individuals, where those places, where similar events took place elsewhere in our Bibles, many times they'll be cataloged in that center reference area. It will also include citations from the Old Testament and the New Testament, which means that we don't need to have, to have photographic memories. We just need to have a good margin that helps us to find our way as we move through the Old and the New Testament. And lastly, it will give us literal or alternate word meanings without other Bible study aids. So right within the margin, we will get uh, at times alternates to the, to the main text, which of themselves oftentimes have connections that help to uh, disclose additional information from the Bible based on those marginal references. So let's get busy. Let's look at our, first, our next slide to see how this works. Now what I've done is I've actually blown up that section uh, and that we're looking at Matthew chapter two. And interestingly enough, I thought that this would be helpful because we've looked at Matthew in relation to the Lord's prayer. We've been looking at this theme of the earth being filled with God's glory and there'll be this establishment of a kingdom. And here in Matthew two, we really have that the very beginnings of that, uh, that theme of the, the kingdom in, in the New Testament. Now, what I've tried to do here is to make it a little easier for you to follow. And you can see that there are some sections that are highlighted in green, some that are in blue, and some that are in orange. Now, the blue are, in fact, citations. That's where there's been a direct reference made from the New Testament back to the Old. In the green are examples where either additional information can be found that could expand or amplify on what we find in this section of the New Testament in particular, or it can give us some alternate language. So what I've tried to do is to, to go through this second chapter of Matthew in a very simple but systematic way to give you an exposure as to how these cross-references can be used. So in the first case, we can see that X to the word Jesus, we have a small letter F, and in our margin, we see the reference to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, verses 4, six and seven. Now what I've tried to do is to, for time's sake, give you the references so that you can move along with us. But in Luke chapter two, verse four, which is in the left-hand portion of our slide, we can see, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was the city of David as termed by Luke. And the additional uh, valuable information there in Luke chapter 2, verse 4 is because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, I didn't put on the slide Luke chapter 2, but in that section in Luke, there's also a marginal reference back to 1 Samuel 16. 
And here it just gives uh, evidence to the fact that this was in fact the place of David's birth. And it's described for us in that section of the Old Testament. And we're told, and the Lord said unto Samuel, how long will thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. So when we look at that, we can see that we've got the confirmation that this is the, the city of David, as testified by the Old Testament, as claimed in, in Luke chapter 2, and that the purpose of this is to show that Christ is in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ is connected to this family, and he's part of this royal uh, pedigree, which gives him uh, a position of, of authority as foretold by the Old Testament. Now, if we look down in the, our next slide, we can see here we've got a, a, a reference <clears throat> to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, and I've included verse 1 for, for reference. This is an, an, an instance where there is some additional amplification or clarification of this term that shall rule my people Israel. And here in 2 Samuel 5, verse 1 and 2, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David and to Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou was he that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So David was uh, described in this manner as feeding the nation. He was now going to be the king that would replace Saul. And here, that same connection is in fact made uh, with, with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he shall rule my, peop uh, my people Israel. And it was ruling in the sense of feeding them. He was there to provide for them. He was to be a king but not to be a domineering one. He was one that was to show care and regard for his people. And if we look at our, at our next slide, we can see here we have a citation uh, back to an Old Testament prophet, Micah. Now he prophesied alongside a man called Isaiah, and they were prophesying during the period of, of, of Hezekiah, uh, when they were in, in fact, uh, under siege. And here in Micah chapter 5, we have this reference for us, where we're told, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, although thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. So here we have a prophecy that's prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. And he was going to come from Bethlehem, which was uh, located in the tribal region of Judah. And he shall feed in the strength of the Lord. Once again, it emphasizes that he's there to provide. He's there to nurture them. And he's empowered by the strength of the Lord. It's not his own hand, but he's in fact given that authority by God in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. Now you notice that in the orange section of that slide, there's a reference made when Herod, King Herod, who was ruling over the area of Palestine, said in verse four, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. 
And their response as Bible students was to go back to this passage in Micah chapter 5 and to use that as an indicator as to how events were being fulfilled. So you might say that we are in good company. These are individuals that use their Bible, and so too should we. Let's go on to our next passage. Here we can see as we, we look in this area, uh, once again, we've, we've got some alternate language being provided. It's for that word presented in verse 11. And if you look in your margin, the Greek, the original Greek is that idea, or, or, or the alternate language is that idea of being offered. Now that might seem like an insignificant link, but it's not when we look at it as part of its overall context. Because if we look at they, and we look down into its marginal connection, we can see that there's a reference there to Psalm 72. Now, interestingly enough, Dan took us to Psalm 72, and here we can see a, a passage that is being applied to that time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it talks about the kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall bring presents, the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all the kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. So there's this presentation of gifts. They're being provided by <clears throat> these kings who are giving these offerings, and it uses the word offered as a present that is given to one of greater authority, of greater stature or position. And that is what's being described here. And we're told that he shall deliver the needy when he crieth. So this is how he is going to feed or to care for the people. He's going to provide them with a means of redemption. And you can see that in Psalm 72, as Dan rightly commented, this is actually the final prayer of King David for his son Solomon's kingdom. But the language is actually pointing forward to a much greater kingdom and its fulfillment being Christ's kingdom in the future. But you can notice that there's information that we're provided here that we need to, to recognize. Often we think of Christ being greeted uh, by three kings. Well, if you notice in Matthew, it never says that. The three are only are a number that's chosen because of the three gifts that are offered and that they must, in fact, be linked to individuals. And you also notice in verse 11 that we're told, and when they were coming to the house, and they didn't reside in a house when they were in Bethlehem, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. So these events are not linked with the birth of Christ, but at a later date, when they've returned back to, to, uh, to a household, and these kings, in, in fact, find him, and now he is defined as being a young child and not as a, a, a babe that is, that is swaddled. So it's important for us to, to, to be clear with what we're finding in our Bibles. If we go to our next slide. Here, once again, we have two citations, this time from a prophet, a minor prophet called Hosea, and a major prophet called Jeremiah. Those are the ones in blue. And we can see from, from, from this uh, reference in Hosea, we're told, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord, by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. 
we can see here that it's, it's in fact linking back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where that language is used. But interestingly enough, for your own benefit, and I'll leave you to check that reference in Hosea 11, there's an earlier reference back to the book of Exodus, which you would find in Hosea chapter 11. Once again, these are daisy chained together. So once you get into your margin, you can sort of travel throughout your Bible here in Exodus 4. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. So the example of Christ is really predicated upon that of, of Israel, which preceded it. They were establishing a pattern that would, in fact, be followed by the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we look at, at uh, the section in orange on, on our next reference, we're told, Behold, Bethlehem and all the coast thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. See, once again, it reinforces the fact that the events of the, the, of the wise men uh, meeting Christ are, are in fact uh, at, at a later date, because here he's given a time period from two years old and under. So it gives us uh, some further information from this section in Matthew. And if we move to our next slide, here we can see the final reference uh, in this section to Jeremiah 31. Once again, it's a citation. So there's a direct looking back to that Old Testament passage, and there's a connection that's being made. And the connection here in Jeremiah 31 is, Thus said the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and whip, bitter weeping. Rahel, or Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. So there was a time of suffering. And we can think of those who suffered through the abusive treatment of, of Herod and the putting to death of all these young children. There would have been weeping. So there's a connection that's being made in, in, in Scripture. But if we look at verse 17 of that section, if we have to read a little further, we can see that there is a hope in thine end, said the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their border. There was something positive that was going to come out of this. So once again, when we look at the citation, we can't just sort of laser focus in on just that one passage. We need to look at its broader context. And here it gives us some indication as to what was to be the positive message that was being spoken of by Jeremiah, this pro the prophet. Now, interestingly enough, if you look back further into Genesis 35, verses 16 to 19, there is where Rachel dies during childbirth, a short distance from Bethlehem. So all of this is being stitched together to repeat uh, time and time again, the connection with Bethlehem, the connection with David, the connection with the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these passages uh, are trying to, to build a very strong case that Christ fulfilled what was foretold in the Old Testament to give legitimacy to his, to his position that was, this was the promised Messiah that Israel was waiting for. So I hope you found that helpful. Um, there's a lot more we could do just in that section, but once again, it just gives you a familiarity with how this works. And if you can't find your way around your Bibles, remember that you've got an index at the beginning, and you'll notice that in your center margin, some of the, the references are in a shortened form. So you have to kind of use a little bit of good judgment to, to, to make the connection to see where you are in your Bibles. But once again, try to get as much out of your Bible as you can. And it doesn't need a power cord. You can take it. All you need is some light to be able to read when it's dark. But apart from that, God has given us the rest of the illumination 
to, to come to a richer knowledge of his word. So next week, we're going to be continuing on. Dan's going to be looking at another aspect of Bible prophecy, this time focusing on the man Abraham, which is a key to understanding the prophecy of a kingdom on earth. And what we're going to continue to look at in getting to know your Bible is to look at themes. God has given us the ability to, to remember, to see repeated concepts or words, and to see how they're built throughout the Old Testament. We've already been exposed to some of those, we'll, and we'll use those as an initial frame of reference, but then we're going to continue on further. Once again, as we look at how we can be contacted by our webinar series, there's a number of social media uh, and, and email approaches that you can uh, make use of to contact either Dan or I. And we're happy to ask, answer any questions related to the subject matter that we've covered this week or in previous classes. And when we look at the Bible Basics webinar, we're going to continue to, to try to put more content on our website, both by links to previous recordings, but also additional reference material that can help us as we help you to understand your Bible.